welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting Professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is Jager Sports Vice President and founder of the Athletes Against Anxiety and Depression Foundation, China McCarney. China has been with Jager Sports full-time since 2012. He started the Athletes Against Anxiety and Depression Foundation in 2016 because of his own personal struggles with panic attacks, anxiety, and depression. Their mission is dedicated to providing resources to anyone that suffers from a mental health battle. Their website is aaadf.org. They have a lot of great resources on their webpage. China and I are both passionate about mental health and developing skills to help maintain a healthy lifestyle in and out of the competitive arena. We also dive into why all of this will help players be more successful and programs win more games. There are a ton of actionable items in this episode. He and I both dive into what all of this has meant to us both personally. All of us have to deal with stress on a day-to-day basis. My hope is that this episode will be shared with everyone, not just coaches and players. We have a lot going on in society right now and everyone is dealing with things differently, so hopefully this opens up communication between people. Let's welcome China to the podcast. You know, it's been about 30 years for me of, of studying it and using it, um, using it as a player. Um, I was similar, you know, you and I can get into it. Um, my junior year of high school, I had a lot of issues. Um, I didn't handle my high school head coach well at all, who, who second all-time winningest coach in the, the state of Indiana. He didn't need to change. I was the one that needed to make changes. Coach Don Mattingly. Uh, we won a state championship my senior year, but my junior year did not handle the pressure of playing. Um, you know, played in a high school where you played freshman, freshman year, you played JV sophomore year. You are not going to play varsity. You are maybe going to play as a junior, and got an opportunity to play early and didn't play well, and so got put on the bench, and mm-hmm. then played later in the year. But that next year, our trainer. Uh, Dr. Montrestel, who's deceased now, he gave us these audio cassettes that were progressive muscle relaxation techniques that um, it, it wow. referenced Jack Nicholas. Um, I still have that. That's part of the I-70 <laughs> clinic is it has a picture. I still have that audio cassette. And so my um, 
senior year of high school was way different. Played great. Um, we won a state championship. We were thirty six and two. I, I was lucky. The high school I played at, you just didn't lose. I lost five games in high school. Um, oh man! Yeah, five games total in four years. We lost with the class that I played with. So you know, freshman wow. year we lost none. Sophomore year lost a game. Junior year, you know, it was either four or five games. My junior year, we were really good. Had a bunch of seniors that were going to go play college baseball. We were twenty nine and zero and got beat in the day game of the state finals. Oh, and and that team cracked. Like it, it all kind of just lined up right for me because that team of seniors melted in that game. And so between my junior year and high and senior year that whole team started to listen to those, those audios. And we were on, we were nails. Like we beat teams that we shouldn't have beaten because we just played better. Um, you know, it goes into all the things that you talk about just from a, a peak performance standpoint, you know, the mental health component is so important to it, but then, then you factor in the peak performance side of it. Here with China McCarney, uh, Jager Sports, and then also founder of Athletes Against Anxiety and Depression. China, thanks for coming on with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. You and I are so passionate about this subject. Uh, I think it's helped you enormously. It's helped me enormously. And, you know, it's about giving back. Uh, you know, I think there's people that still don't know about this stuff that, that we need to try to educate on it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's kind of the motivation behind everything that I do is, you know, I struggled mentally um, with performance on and off the field. And so it's really just about creating resources, awareness, education for anybody that's struggling so that they don't have to go through that journey alone. And they're given tools to ultimately reach their potential as an athlete, but also as a human being and live a fulfilled life for sure. And this is a little bit of a preview for the I-70 clinic that you and I are both a part of. And um, shout out to, to Joe Alstott and the I-70 clinic. Um, it's going to be phenomenal. I got a chance to watch your presentation. It's, it's tremendous. Thank you. <laughs> when did it start for you as a player? I mean, obviously, you probably did you have it early, anxiety? Or when did it really start for you as a player? As a player, um, I went through some mechanical changes in junior college, and that was really the first adversity I had faced. Um, high school, I went to a small school. We were talking before we got on, and you only lost five games in high school. Now I got to bury my stat because I only lost 11 in four years, and I thought that was good. And now I'm double, more than double your, your loss total. Well, and um, C CIF player of the year, right? I was, yeah, yeah, and um, – I, like I said, I had no adversity. I was small town, um, kind of big fish in a small pond and then um, had unorthodox mechanics as a pitcher. And so, yeah, long story short, I started to face adversity in junior college, didn't really know how to handle it. And um, I'd been introduced to Alan Jager at 12 years old and had been ex exposed to process oriented thinking and mental training visualization, but that just tells you how hard it is. You can have the information but you still may not implement it when the adversity hits. And so it took me some trial and error. Um, and then when I started figuring it out and getting into my junior year where everything was going right, D1 baseball, Big West, projected top five rounds, and then I got pulled from the starting rotation. And that's where my default system was not where it needed to be in terms of my mental approach. And um, 
really where the basis, you know, 11 years later of this teaching and why I'm so passionate about it, um, how I handled that situation wasn't where it needed to be. What did you have to tweak in junior college? So junior college, um, physically, I twisted my mechanics big time. Like I kind of created as much torque and they wanted more traditional mechanics. Um, and so I started experiencing shoulder pain, which I'd been with Jaeger Sports for seven years at that point. And that was just, you don't even know how to spell shoulder pain when you're with Jaeger Sports. Um, and so mentally, I just was negative and very result oriented. Like I'm not where I need to be. I'm not a starter. I'm not this, I'm not that. Instead of just working day to day, um, you know, focusing on getting healthy, focusing on what I could control. Um, and so that kind of laid the framework for the next three years of, I can't worry about external factors dictating my career. I've got to do what I can control on a day in day out basis. And like I said, that's easy to say 12, 13 years later, cause it was not a daily experience where I, I succeeded at that for sure. And that's a common occurrence, you know, for somebody to make a little bit of a switch here and there, you may get nicked up a little bit. You may get dinged up with your arm, especially with pitchers. If you're going to make some sort of mechanical chain, because up the, up the chain, it's going to affect something different. So that's a very common occurrence with, with shoulder and, and elbow issues. If you tweak something mechanically. Yeah. And it can be doubly frustrating because something you've done your whole life and you're used to, then a coach wants to put a stamp or whatever the case may be. And then all of a sudden you're dealing with a physical ailment. So you're dealing with the frustration of doing something that may not be comfortable. And now there's pain and it's like, why can't I just do it the way I was doing it and being successful? Um, so there's a lot of, of mental adversity that you have to deal with for sure in that process. When did it start to then get back better for you? You know, you work through some things and go on and, and, play professional baseball when did it start to get better for you so going into my sophomore year of junior college I had a great relationship with the coaching staff there College of the Canyons Chris Coda um, and we had imagine that a conversation right there was communication between player and coach <laughs> and I just told him I was uncomfortable and that I thought I could succeed for the team and he was obviously open. I didn't just tell him this. We, it was a, a dialogue mutually, but um, I kind of was just left to kind of get back to what I felt comfortable doing, how I attacked hitters and everything like that for my sophomore year. Sophomore year went way better um, performance wise <laughs> because there was more trust and whatnot. And um, so, yeah, so that started to get better because there was less mentally to focus on where I didn't have to worry about feeling comfortable physically and then mentally committing to a pitch or something like that. So communication between player coach, um, I think it's so vital and I'm sure we're going to get into that more, but um, that's when it started. That was when the fuse was lit to really start to lay some good physical and mental foundation for the next five, six, seven years, whatever it was. And you talk about building a mental health culture. I mean, that that's where it starts, right? Is the conversation with the coach and the players. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, one of my kind of hot topics that I always go back to is a lot of coaches have an open door policy, you know, first day of practice, hoo -hoo, that's the buzzword. I know I'm supposed to check this bullet point off. We have an open door policy here and it feels like if you walk through that door, you're going to get punched in the face. So, you know, it's more um, 
your priorities and your actions and your words and your actions have to match up if you want your players to really respect and get the most out of them as a coach's culture. And so at COC, I was very blessed. The coach was understanding. We could speak. We could um, collaborate to get to the desired result for both sides, which is me performing my best, my best for the program. Um, and I did not have that experience in division one baseball. Um, but yes, establishing a mental health culture, it, it starts with communication, really laying out your priorities for your players and then your actions backing that up because you can say you have an open door policy, but if a player is terrified to walk through that door, then your actions aren't matching that statement. I would specifically schedule meetings with players um, because I knew that. I knew you know, I was an assistant for 15 years, and I knew when I became a head coach, because my dad was a head coach, that they were going to start to view me differently. So I specifically set up weekly meetings with them to force them to come in and talk to me because I knew some of the kids in the, the program were not going to come seek me out because they were going to be too intimidated. And I didn't think I was an intimidating person, but that head coach – they're going to view you differently as a head coach. So just that's one of the ways to just alleviate that is just to schedule meetings with guys and make them come in and talk to you. And it may be a, a five, 10 minute check-in and you may not have much to say, but I, I think it, it does open some doors up and opens those lines of communication up that you maybe don't have if you don't schedule those meetings with guys. Yeah. And that's why I love having conversations like this because that's a tool that I didn't necessarily think about that a coach can immediately implement, right? That you can control as a coach in a culture where it creates opportunities for communication and you're not relying on a player that may be scared, intimidated for whatever reason. I mean, it's, it's pretty natural. The head coach is the head coach. You're a little, it's like, that's the guy that's making the decision. So that's a, a tool I'm going to stash away for sure. When I speak to coaches and programs and stuff like that, because that is, a great idea and just a great way to build rapport and relationship. Well, one of the, in my talk for I-70, a lot of it's habit forming and how to, how to change habits. And they call it the fresh start effect. And what you see when someone, so it might be a, a freshman in high school or a freshman in college, or even a rookie ball player, they, people can make habit changes quicker once their environment is disrupted. But if you don't get a hold of them right away and start to help them with those, they may get into bad habits because their environment's been disrupted. So, you know, as a coach, especially with your new players, it's important to try to get with them as soon as possible, because if you leave them be for a while, they may get into, they may get sidetracked and you may not even know that as a coach where the earlier you can get with them, you know, again, even if it's just a five to 10 minute check in, like, hey, how are you doing? Do you need anything? And I saw that really the last two, three years as a head coach, I saw more and more issues with players from uh, depression and anxiety. I was walking more players to the counseling center than I ever had in the past. And, and that's not a bad thing. And at least guys knew that they could come get me and I could take them there. Um, you know, and you talk about that a little bit with, with educating your players on, there are resources, especially at the college level, there are counseling resources on campus. And I love that you, you've talked about that too. Can you go in that, into that a little bit more with reaching out to resources? Yeah. And that, that just goes in line with the, 
like responsibility of the coach and letting your players know, like the way I, I like to go over it is like, if your player has a physical injury, if they sprain their ankle or they have an arm injury as a coach, you're going to give them every possible resource through the training staff through whatever it is to get them back on the field and performing their best sprained ankle, ice, rest, get back. Well, anxiety, depression, mental health battle can be the same thing. You can just look at it as, you know, a mental injury. They've got to go on the mental DL or whatever it is. And it's not a negative. They just need the resources and the tools to get back. So what's the, the same thing as icing the ankle? It could be going to a council seeking therapy. And so as a coach, the earlier you can establish that um, at the beginning of the year, letting the players know that there are resources. If you're going through something, if anything's feeling overwhelming, we've got resource A, B, or C here um, that you can go to, and that gets them back mentally healthy and performing well for the culture of your team and your program. Um, but again, that those those resources can't be like when I think back to my playing career. You know, you'd have somebody come out and speak for a day, and it just kind of felt like a box was being checked instead of there was an actual investment in the program. And so your actions have to match. Like if you have that on the first day and you present these resources and then a player comes to you and you're like, oh, or your, your response to them isn't great, they're, they're going to be more shy in the future. If something comes up, they're going to bury it, which is detrimental and terrible for their mental health. And so um, your actions have to match that. You should, like you said, you walked guys to the counseling office with them, and I'm sure they felt like you were a part of their journey with them, which was huge. Well, the Happiness Lab, um, Lori Santos, I took this class. It's, um, it's called the Science of Wellbeing. It's a free six-week course uh, offered through Yale. It's courseRA.org for anybody that hasn't watched it or gone through that course. I thought it was life-changing, so we would have our counseling center come in um, and and just present to our guys. And I would tell them like, hey guys, I, I'm here for you, but I know there may be things that you don't want to talk to me about that you may need someone else to, to talk about with. Because I, I think as an athlete, especially with head coaches, there may be some things that they're going through that until you have a relationship built up with them, they may not come to you, but they're going to need somebody to talk to about it. And I think as an athlete, there's always that, you know, apprehension to, do I go tell coach about this because he may view me differently. And, and that may not be the case at all, but I know as an athlete, that's probably what they think sometimes that, Hey, I'm here for you, but yes, there might be some things out there that you might need somebody else and somebody who's a professional at this, that, that can handle it. Well, and that's where like, like you said, there's nothing wrong with that as a player. They may not feel comfortable, but as, as a coach, all you can do is what you can do. Like we talked about at the beginning, controlling what you can control. And as a coach, if you can just present as many outlets for them, like, hey, I'm here for you, but I know there's some stuff. And so the more information you give them, the more education, the more resources, then it's on them to take the action, which direction they feel most most comfortable, which in the end is going to be the best for the program, best for the player, best for the relationship with the coach. And so the more options they have, the better. It's like, you can come to talk to me, but if you don't want to talk to me, here's our counseling resources. If you don't, like if high school coaches are listening or something, there's so many great resources online now because, you know, you talk about colleges, they have health departments, they have mental health departments, which is great for those coaches. But if you're a high school coach 
and you're thinking right now, like, what are my resources? What are my options? My, the foundation, AAADF.org has free resources. It's literally a resource tab where there's videos where you can send your players on how to deal with certain mental health stuff. The ADAA, Anxiety and Depression Association of America, these are places that can be your allies right away to where you can send your players, um, like, look, if there's something you're going through, here's some resources to do your own research. Um, and so, again, it's just providing as many options as possible so that regardless of the circumstance that comes up, the player has somewhere to turn and some option to try to feel comfortable. And the earlier with the high school coaches, the earlier you can help your players because they may not have the resources. And I just saw the the numbers. You talk about mental health statistics. I saw in 2020, uh, suicide rates are up 200% now. And the pandemic has not helped. The election has not helped. Black Lives Matter. There's a lot going on. And I have a 15 and 17-year-old. They're dealing with a lot of of issues right now. So we need to try to be advocates for mental health because obviously the worst thing that can happen is somebody takes their own life. And it, you know, it, that's a, that's a real possibility now in the society that we're in is that someone could take their life if we don't show them that, Hey, there's a way to get help if you need it. Yeah. And that's a, a great point. And one of my topics I brought up in the um, I-70 presentation, I talked about there's not a lot of things in life that are life and death problems, right? Like, especially for people like us that are competitive and perfectionists, it's like everything can seem like a big deal in the moment, but very few of those big deals, you know, quote unquote, are life and death. This is life and death. This is, you can save your players' lives if they have a resource to turn to or if they don't. Like, that's the difference. And the worst part since 2016 for me, since starting this foundation is the calls from the parents. I'm getting goosebumps already. The calls from the parents or the coaches after they've lost somebody. And they're like, I want to devote my life now to a cause and how can I get involved? And it's just, it breaks your heart because they didn't know. And that's the, the toughest part, I think, is they were like, I had no idea, you know, little Johnny or little Susie was dealing with this. I had no clue. And so that goes back to the point of establishing that relationship that you talked about with your players, establishing comfort, trust in the resources that you provide so that if you see something, the more relationship you have with someone, the more you notice if their mood changes, the more you notice if their personality is changing. And so if you have that relationship with your player, you can be like, you know what, they're acting a little different. I'm going to schedule that five to 10 minute meeting tomorrow morning and talk to them and make sure they have everything they need. And so those little tiny actions, it's life and death. It can literally be life and death. And like you said, the earlier you can establish, especially with the teenagers nowadays with, I don't envy them, social media, COVID, um, everything is just so filtered now and such a competition of who's got the cutest looking salad on Instagram. I just don't understand. So <laughs> yeah. And I know personally you dealt with it. Was that really the driving force of athletes against anxiety and depression? Yes. Yeah. So I had my first panic attack in 2009, which is no coincidence. That was my junior year of college going through the draft, draft stock drop in draft stock rising, all that stuff. And then I hit it for six years. I didn't tell anybody about it for six years um, because I was terrified what the scouts would think. Like we talked about terrified what the coaches would think. Um, 
And so in 2015, I kind of had, you know, the rock bottom, rock bottom moment. I had ordered a, a burger at the Habit Grill, which who doesn't love a burger at the Habit? And I couldn't go inside to get it. I was having a panic attack in my car. And that was the moment I was like, I have to get help. I can't do this anymore. Um, and so once I got help over the next year, I started to look for causes to be involved with that were more real world approach, more athlete driven, um, and weren't so scientific based or like big, um, you know, organizations that you couldn't, and I couldn't find anything basically. And so that's what happened. Um, I did a little social media movement in November of 2016 and it exploded and I got a ton of private messages, not public, you know, on social media saying, keep doing what you're doing. I deal with the same stuff, blah, blah, blah. And so I realized I needed to make it bigger than just the social media movement. Got the smarter people to me to help me get it 501c3 registered. And here we are four years later. So yeah, it was very personal. And then, um, just wanted resources available, real world resources that you could implement in your own life if you didn't have means to, you know, medical healthcare access and different stuff like that. I think Kevin Love does a good job of of sharing his story and and his battles. Uh, he's written some unbelievable articles just about his his personal struggles. So what really helped you? I mean, going going to therapy, you know, was it Medicaid? You know, what really helped you personally? Because I know there's somebody listening in right now that's dealing with it and may not know how to to attack it. You know, what were the things that really helped you get back on track? That's such a perfect question. Um, so 2015, I went to therapy for the really the first time. I had done some stuff in the past, but like consistent therapy and more life approach, not baseball approach. It wasn't just to get back on the field. So therapy was the first step. But what therapy did for me more than anything else, more than like diving into past emotions or how did that make you feel? It gave me permission to just accept what I was going through and share with everybody around me. And the therapist that I worked with, she was just like, what you're dealing with is not in a bad way. It's, she was like, it's not unique. There's so many people struggling. There's a community that can help you um, and tell the people around you. And so I just started telling people around me and one of three things happened. Most common is like, I deal with that too, right? The second was people that love you don't care, right? They wanna be like, they're like, hey, you're dealing with something. We all deal with something. Let's let me know if I can help in any other way. And then the third is people that don't understand you get them out of your life. You just filter them out of your life. It's not, it's not the end of the world to not have somebody that can't understand or judges you for it. And so that was kind of the biggest thing is, and that's why one of the tabs on the website, the AAAD website is tell your story because me telling my story is probably the biggest thing over the last five years where I'm just comfortable in my own skin, even when I'm having a panic attack, because people know that about me. And I'm not hiding it from the world, white knuckling, praying to God. No one knows that I'm dealing with it. So when you started therapy, was it once a week? You know, were you going every week to therapy or, you know, how often were you going? Yeah, I went once a week for two months to start. And then once every other week for um, probably a good extended period of time. It'd be twice a month because there was a financial aspect. It wasn't through my health insurance. And so I was paying for it. Um, 
but it was an investment. Like I, there's, I've never gotten a better return on investment than that investment. But uh, once a week for two months, once every other week. And then since then I've done kind of on like a need to basis. And then I'm doing different modes of therapy. Like if, if you talk to someone over and over, you can only talk about the same stuff, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. But now I'm doing, I just started yesterday, actually more of like a neuroscience based where we're not talking about past or emotions or we're talking about like brain wiring and how to kind of change the default system and different stuff like that. And so just evolving over the last five years, I'm on medication for uh, the last 18 months. And so like for me, I'm, I'm willing to try anything to not deal with those panic attacks anymore. <laughs> yeah. With the neuroscience part of it, are there certain things that trigger panic attacks or do they just come up, you know, whenever? There's different um, circumstances and everybody's different. The biggest like motivating factor for panic attacks for one of the biggest motivating factors is shame and like feeling unworthy or your fear of being judged. Like when you think about public speaking or something like that, a lot of people have that fear and that literally can happen between age like two and 10 and you don't even know. And it, it just, when your brain's developing, if there's certain things in childhood that happen that make you feel ashamed, unworthy, whatever it is, and it doesn't have to be a catastrophic incident. It could just be something that rooted itself in your brain that you should be ashamed or un unworthy or self-conscious or whatever. That could be a big seed planted for later life. Well, grade school is a great place to get shamed. I mean, I'm <laughs> yeah. serious. Like, for lack of a better term, great. Like, you're you're going to get shamed a lot in in grade school, um, and then into high school, and especially with social media now. Like, it's a you know, it's it's a cesspool now of of shame because you're going to get judged, you're going to get shamed, and so it's it, again, a lot of people go through this. We all deal with shame in, in different ways. So almost everybody's had to deal with this at some point. Yes. But here's the, the great news is, so yes, I will completely agree with you because I love that word with the cesspool of social media. And now it's adults shaming adults. Like there's, you know, I was almost going to say there's no shame and then I would just get punched by the pun school. But um, the good news is that all of that is conditioning, right? Shame is conditioning. If you have this doubt about yourself and then someone confirms it, then it roots itself a little deeper in your brain and blah, 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 blah. And the snowball continues. But the great news is that you can rewire it the other way. There's conditioning and stuff you can do and work you can do. And my two favorite things that our brain does for ourselves: one is called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon or the frequency illusion, where if you've ever been shopping for a new car, right? And you're like looking at Audis, all of a sudden there's Audis everywhere on the street. Well, there's no more Audis on the street. Your brain has just changed itself to notice that stuff for you. And at the base of your brain, I know it's going to get a little technical, but I'm going to simplify it, I promise. At the base of your brain, there's a thing called the reticular activating system, which is basically your filter for your brain. And at any point, there could be 2 million data points going on in the world that is distracting your brain. And so your reticular activating system is the filter that tells you what to focus on. Well, you can dictate that filter too. And so the more you meditate or focus on, if you don't like the word meditate, the more you focus on, visualize gratitude, your strong suits, what you've accomplished, who you want to be, the positives around you, 
all of those things, that's what you start to notice. Just like those Audis, you start to notice the positives, what you're doing well, all of that stuff. And you start to affirm and root those things in your brain. And so just as easy as it was for the shame to be affirmed and kind of build up over time, if you start to shift your focus and it really is just intention by you, you can change it and you can start to really, really see your brain focus on positives around you and feel just lighter and better. And that's the cognitive behavior therapy part of, of that side of things, of, of the right. rewiring part of it, because it, it, it works. That part does work. I mean, guys that I pay attention to that are open. Tim Ferriss is a guy that I listen to a lot that's very open about his, his struggles that he's had, and he talks a lot about cognitive behavior therapy. Yeah. Uh, now, bringing it back to the baseball side of it, I loved with your presentation because you talked about being better humans, you know, trying to coach better humans, better athletes. But it, it, there is a win component to this because if your players are in a better headspace, they're going to be on the field better. They're going to be in, in a better place present-wise. You are going to win more games by helping your players with this part of it. Right. And that's the bottom line, like not naive and I'm a competitor, right? I would, if you told me you're going to have a panic attack, but you're going to win, I'm in. I'll have the panic attack to win, right? <laughs> like I'm not naive and I want to win ball games too. And you're absolutely right that if your players, if we go back to that analogy of if your player tries to play with a sprained ankle, he's not going to play as well. If your player plays with a clouded mind, he's not going to play as well. And so I love what Alan Jager says um, when he talks about, you know, there's that saying that the game is 90% metal, right? And the game's 90% mental, but we spend so much time, if not all time on physical practice. And so if you just change just a little bit, 10 minutes a day, you know, we're on the ABCA podcast. So I don't think we can get through an episode without mentioning Sheetinger, right? Sheets lays his players down at Georgia Gwinnett every day, 10 minutes a day and does a breathing exercise to get them focused and get their intention going for the day. But if you, allocate a little time and change your priority to help your players mind as well. They're going to be better players for your program. And we're going to be better and more equipped to win games. Like you said, your own personal experience, your junior year, you had a stud team, but the performance your senior year was better. And in just from taking it away in one conversation, that, senior year group for you was probably more mentally tough than that junior year group for you. And, and way less talented. You know, uh, off air, we talked about my junior year of high school. We were 29-0. and 0. We got beat in the day game of the state championship with uh, a senior left-hander who went to Evansville to pitch. A first baseman went to Evansville. Our shortstop went to Notre Dame and played at Arizona State also. And so team of junior year was way more talented. And between that year and my senior year, our trainer bill montrestel gave us this progressive relaxation technique audio that we all started to listen to and it did it changed my performance it changed my perspective and i've given that audio out because it's it went from an audio cassette to a cd that i would give to players and then turned into an mp3 and i've still given that out to coaches i did a, a whole research project on it for my masters that is actually on the my abca app you can see the the project that I that paper that I wrote is on the my ABCA app and I've dove into this for 30 years and you know 
the laying down portion for me, we would use on Friday after practice as kind of a post-recovery portion of it. And I have gotten into transcendental meditation. So we would do that with our guys. Our pre-practice, our three to five minutes pre-practice was more box breathing. um, And then also would add in some yoga breathing because everybody talks about the slowing down. And this is the kind of the art of all of this. Not every one of your players is going to need to slow down. Some of them are going to need to be able to ramp up. So we used the Ujjayi breathing, the victorious breathing, where it was in and out of the nose, where it was a more aggressive exhale for guys that were checked out. Because I think we need both sides of it. There is the mental health and the slowing down component. But there are some guys that are completely off the map, checked out, that need to get themselves going where there's breathing techniques for that side of it too. And and you don't know, you just don't know where your players are at when they show up for practice, where some guys might be ramped up, but some guys might be completely checked out because they've had a hard week of studying. They've had a hard week of training in the weight room where they may be dragging butt a little bit, where you need to introduce some of the, the, the get them going breathing techniques that, that get them going. Because again, arousal level is important and everybody is different individually where their arousal level needs to be. So you got to try to dive into that side of it too, because some guys need help with getting themselves going as well. No. And that's a great point because it's not always just about, you know, this Zen place of just, I remember at an ABCA breakout session, uh, Ken Revisa, rest his soul, just beautiful human being. Alan took the room through a meditation, Alan Jaeger. And at the end of it, Ken was like, Alan, I, I got to be honest, I feel like going to sleep right now, not playing a ball game. And it was like such a good contrast. And they had the, like, I'm so blessed. I was like 20 at the time and I'm staring at these two gurus go and they talked about it in front of the group and they were both right. And like you're saying, it's that intimate relationship with your players, knowing what it is. And I talk about intention like an intention exercise before you get going for the day, right? Where you give your athlete, you know, you, you have the framework and the foundation. And like you said, three to five minutes, whatever it is, you give them the opportunity to get what they need to get done to accomplish what they need to accomplish that day for the program in that practice. And, you know, it just hit me as you were speaking. Cause I just, I'm always in the Jager sports mindset. Obviously I've been there for 21 years and, why I fell in love with the Jager Sports throwing program was there's a foundation, there's guidelines, and there's fundamentals that you follow, but then there's freedom, man. Go be an athlete, figure out your long toss, figure out everything else. But they give you the resources so that you have the ingredients for your best recipe arm care-wise. Same thing mental, mental training-wise is – give the foundation. Here's what you need to do. If you need to slow down, here's what you need to do. Like you were talking about with the different breathing exercises. If you need to get yourself going, figure out what you need on a given day, because sometimes it's going to be, you're more hyper. You're, you've got too much going on in your mind. Your girlfriend broke up with you. You've got a test and calculus. You've got all this stuff. I need to slow down today. But then the next day you're a little lethargic. You're a little tired. Your girlfriend didn't break up with you. You aced your calculus test. And now we got to get ramped up. And so it's the same thing, giving your athletes those resources and then giving them the time to implement. Yeah. Giving them the time to implement it um, before practice. It's that freedom and it's the resources. And uh, I think that's, that's a huge point that you said there, because a lot of times people will hear mental training and associate it with Zen, calm, tired, 
And it, it is peak performance. Like whatever you need to do to get yourself ready to go that day, that's what you need to do. And it, it's a peak performance. There is mental health component to it, but it is a peak performance component. And the more I spent on the daily practice, and it's funny, as a player, when I was doing this, if things started to go well, I might, I maybe let the audio slide a little bit. And then maybe I'd start to slide performance-wise, so I'd start to listen to it more. And then my junior year of college, I did it religiously. It was before every night before I went to bed. And I did also put on about 20 pounds of muscle, so that was part of it too. But my junior year of college, I had 90 hits and, and tore the roof off of it. But that was part of my daily practice was that audio was every night. Like I would listen to it every night. And I started to do a little bit of journaling then. Um, you know, played for my dad and brother wasn't the easiest thing in the world to play college baseball for my dad and brother Too in your face combative. I loved them. I was a good player because of them, but I needed to de-stress and, and a productive de-stress because as we all know, there's some really unproductive ways to de-stress. Uh, self-medication is a huge thing right now, you know, and, and it's been a huge thing, whether it was alcohol or drugs, people will self-medicate to, alleviate that anxiety that was obviously not healthy but they'll use it and you see it all the time so i i use the audio as a way to kind of de-stress when i needed to at night and also journal to get things off my chest those were things that helped me a lot as a player uh, but it's like anything else you have to do it um you know you can talk about it but you have to go out and do it yeah and i think the point i want to make sure the listeners just digest and take in here about like exactly what you're saying mental health mental training establishing a mental health culture all that stuff it's not to create like a calm robotic player right at all and you know alan jager is obviously well known he's my mentor i've seen him compete you better watch out he is terrifying competitor but he when you meet him and you talk to him and he's so calm and he's this, but when he's in competitive, you know, if we're playing horse, he's coming for your throat. Like if he misses a two foot putt, he might need a new putter. Like he's competing. And so all it is about is clearing your mind, getting your mind to a state that you can focus intently 100% on the task at hand, whether it's pitch to pitch, whether it's intention for practice, whether it's reps in the weight room, but when you're competing and when you're performing, you're an animal and you're a competitor. It's not, it's not this, you know, foo-foo, mentally calm, like you want to be calm, but it's calm so that you can be a terrifying competitor and rip your opponent's head off. And so I want to make sure people take that in, that this is not something that's foo-foo to try. This is something to get the most out of your competitors, to get the most wins, to keep your job, to get better jobs stuff like that. And so I just wanted to make that point because it sometimes from the outside, when you think of mental training and you think it's like meditation, breathing exercises, it's like, well, competing against a mentally strong guy and you're, you're going to feel a lot different. Well, cause I had to redline, like I had to get close to redlining when I was a player, that was where I was best, but I had to be able to bring myself back when I needed to. So I had to run right up to the edge. And I think that's where most competitors live when they're good. Like it's right at the edge, but we can't go over because once you go over, you're going to have a hard time getting it back because then we get into fight or flight. And, and once you get into fight or flight, then it, 
the only thing that's going to stop fight or flight is you get away from the activity, and we don't want that. But you're going to have to run red to be able to get to that that place that you need to get to. And again, everybody's different. But yeah, this isn't a it's not a relaxed state like the peak performance state you're going to have anxiety so we have to learn how to control that anxiety and every performer goes through it i say it a lot you know musicians go through it people that are actors go through it athletes obviously go through it where they have to run that red where you have some anxiety but you have to be able to learn to control that anxiety and i think that's a revisit statement too you have to get the butterflies flying in formation you know, those butterflies that you have inside, you know, I think Ken said that and coined it, that you have to get those butterflies going in the same direction. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a, such a good saying. <laughs> As a coach, I, the, it's really hard to spot if somebody is struggling. Are there some key, like some tells for players if, if they're dealing with their team and maybe they, they think a kid is struggling? Are there some, some tells maybe if a kid's struggling? Yeah, absolutely. So, and this is for sports or, or just normal life too. If you see a drastic personality change one way or the other, because somebody that might be like even keel or, you know, all of a sudden they're making a ton of jokes or they're louder or they're this and that, that can be a tell. And then obviously it's easier to spot the other way. If you've got a guy that usually has charisma or an athlete that's usually bouncing around and energetic, and then they're, they're kind of, um, a little more down, not talking, that's easier to spot. And then another big tell, big red flag is isolating themselves. You know, if, if a player, you know, at practice or at a game isn't associating with the team or they're trying to isolate themselves or missing practices, missing assignments, missing meetings or something like that. Um, because when you're depressed and when you're anxious, you don't want to be around anybody, especially when you're depressed. You're in a deep, dark hole. You want to sleep you lack energy and you just want to be alone. And so if you see big personality fluctuations, either way, if you see somebody isolating themselves, um, that's where establishing that relationship is so crucial, especially, you know, head coach doesn't have to do everything. They just have to set this, the culture. And a lot of times players will befriend assistant coaches. You know, a lot of times that's who they're working with on a daily basis. And so if the assistant coaches are educated as well on what to look for, um, they know the resources available for the players that can be crucial too, but, um, it's just getting to know someone, getting to know them and then looking for those flags. And if you see it, not necessarily like jumping on them mental health wise, right. Cause that's a tricky barrier for coaches too. It's like, if I see something that I think may be an issue, I don't want to go up to a guy or a gal and say, are you depressed? Like that doesn't work because first of all, they're not going to want to admit it. And then it can almost feel like an attack. So that's where you just kind of ease it in. Or like you said, you have a, a meeting with them and then you ask them, you give the floor to them. Hey, are you, what's going on? Everything good? How's life? How are your grades? How's this and that? And, and trying to, you know, lead the witness, so to speak, into actually um, admitting that something's wrong and they need, they need some help. When I first got to Western, our, one of our best players, he was unbelievable, but was manic depressive. And mm -hmm would that's the signs were both of those like some days he didn't want to talk or be around anybody but then some days he would tell you the 800 things he was going to get accomplished 
So you knew he was starting to ride the the curve up of of manic, you know, and and so that's both sides of it. You know, everybody talk, focuses on kind of the depressive side of it, but the manic side is a tell too because I'm going to do this coach and I'm going to do this coach and I'm going to do this coach, and so I could tell like he was starting to ride the wave up where, you know, that that's almost worse at times. I have friends that have battled manic press, depression and it's almost worse because you know the downswing is going to come at some point for them and that's where you run into that's where the suicide part comes into is once they start to come back down and head down the downslope because that's where they're starting to have that internal dialogue of this is going to get bad and I know how bad it's going to get so again don't don't feel like just again, give them some resources. And, yeah. and that's, that's the, it, it's a hard conversation, but again, the alternative, if you don't do anything is somebody could lose their life. And that's what we want to try to stay away from. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's little actions can have massive resort or resort, massive results, which is the beautiful part of this whole discussion is as a coach, as a leader, as a teacher, you don't have to rearrange your entire program you just have to supplement what you're already doing with very small steps and you can have a massive impact on your players on your performance you know on your winning percentage and then on your athletes as human beings like that's what i always say is you better be developing your athletes into better human beings first before better athletes and if they're better human beings a lot of times they're going to become better athletes anyway um but small actions day after day daily practice it, it can it can change the world and you can change someone's life for sure. Scott Fox was on with me. Anybody that wants to go back, it's episode 159. He's out of Washington, D.C. He deals a lot with mental health with athletes, but he talks about stop treating uh, cavities, you know, because that, that's what he views mental health as is you wait for a problem to arise and then you're going to fill it like a dentist fills a cavity where we're trying to give them skills and tools to, to be able to maintain and and not that you're going to completely avoid it, but at least allow them to maintain it a little bit better and, and maybe stay away from some of the issues by, by curbing it and heading it off at the past before they have to deal with anything. Well, and that's a, a great point because two points to that is one, Alan, Alan Jager always talks about prehab with the arm. Like, why do you wait till an injury to get into arm care? Get into arm care with a healthy arm and avoid the avoidable injuries and it's the same thing with mental health. And one of the things like I can speak to just from personal experience is if I would have had resources, education, people around me that had gone through something similar to what I went through in 2009, I don't suffer for six years by myself. There's no way because it wouldn't have been this shock to the system. My first panic attack, I thought I was having a heart attack, right? I went to the doctor. I got an EKG. They told me it was mental. I wanted to kill them. I was like, are you kidding me? Mental? That, that what just happened to my body was mental. And I, so I had zero education, right? And so if I had education, I would have, it might've taken a while. Maybe it's one year, maybe it's two years of stubbornness because I think I can handle it by myself. I'm a competitor perfectionist. I'm going for it, but it wouldn't have been this massive shock to the system because I would have had education. I would have heard about it before. And so if that's all you accomplish is education with your players, that can be amazing for them down the line. If they start to experience it, something and they're like, wait, I remember coach said we have this mental health counselor or there's this resource or there's this. 
and they don't feel this sense of I'm alone. I need to recluse into my room, medicate with alcohol or whatever it is. Um, they know there's education, there's resources there. And so just speaking from personal experience, six years of living one way on the outside and feeling completely different on the inside, struggling and doing everything in my power to not let people know I was struggling is the worst feeling in life is li living two different lives. It's like living a lie almost every single day. Um, and so if you can help people avoid that, um, you're changing their lives for sure. I had one coaching when I was coaching at Western. I was late in the office working and you could not have told me that I was not having a heart attack. You could not have told me. Like, uh, I called the uh, I called the ambulance because there's nobody around in Western Hall, and I called. I was like, "Hey, I need somebody to come check me out." And so I went to the ER. They they carted me to the ER, and same thing. I was like, "You could not have told me that I was not having a heart attack." So yeah, they yeah. gave me the nitro Ooh. pill, and I was like, uh, "They were like, ah, I think you're gonna be okay." I'm like, "Really?" I was like, "Okay." <laughs> yeah. But you know, sleep is important nutrition nutrition's important you know the player that i talked about from western not great sleep habits uh you know came from a very tough upbringing so i knew he wasn't getting the the right nutrition i would bring him food like i would take him groceries because i knew he wasn't getting anything to eat really outside of what he was getting off his meal plan so just to try to help him and you know, in just small ways that way. And you can't do that for everybody, but I just knew his situation was much worse than any of the other guys that we had on the team that year that I was trying to help him ways, get more food. You know, hopefully that would lead to some other things because I think that's where people run into issues too. If, if you're not handling that side of things, you're going to be more apt to run into some of the mental health issues that are out there as well. Yeah, no, it's funny. It just hit me. We're talking with great reason about the player side, but coaches got to take care of their mental health too, right? Coaches are dealing with so much. If you have one bad set of parents that are psychos about their son's playing time, that's enough to give anybody a panic attack. And so you've got to- Well, we're kind of the, the yin and the yang on that with the I-70 <laughs> talk that you give is, is catered more towards the players. Mine is catered more towards the coaches because it, it is both, both have to deal with it. Right. And, and the more <clears throat> education and intention the coach has in his own life, the easier it's going to be. They're trying stuff. And it, the reason it hit me so hard was you said sleep habits, nutrition and this and that. And some coaches, you know, are so committed to their job, which is amazing. Right. But they're recruiting, they're calling, they're this, they're that they're in the office. They don't get as much movement as they want to. They're competitors, which is why they're coaching. So they're not getting the physical exercise, which is detrimental to their mental health, but then they're not sleeping as well. Because even when you do lay down, you're thinking about, oh man, can your I mind's racing in? for sure. Yeah. I mean, that was, was a lot of not sleepless nights, but restless sleep, restless sleep isn't great, you know, because if you care about anything at all, when your head hits the pillow, your mind's going to race a little bit. So, you know, I've give, I have sleep audios that, that I've used that I have as well that I've given to guys because it's hard for some guys to be able to get to turn it off at night when you when your head hits the pillow uh your mind's going to be racing a little bit too and that that makes for an awful night's sleep yeah and that's where practice comes in and being comfortable with stillness because especially our society and in athletics we're not accustomed to stillness and so like you said 
your only stillness is when you lay down and then your brain's like, finally, I have a chance. Here's all the stuff that's been in the back of your head all day. And it's like, that's what happens when you start trying to meditate or you start trying the very early stages of meditation, breathing exercise. You're like, what is my brain doing? You lay down and it's like, I haven't thought about that for three years while well, your brain's been waiting to give that to you for stillness. And so the more time you spend until stillness, the more time you allocate to just spend with your breath, the easier it'll be when you lay down at night, your brain's already gone through that process. If you've given yourself 10 minutes to be in stillness throughout the day, sometime when you lay down, it's not perfect, but it's a little easier to be in that stillness and hopefully get to sleep. Um, but yeah, that is, that's one of the biggest phenomenons early on with our, when we do camps and stuff and meditation and we ask people, it's like, I thought about every single detail of my life for the last five years. And it's like, well, your brain's been waiting for that. And it's an American thing because people feel like, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? Like they want to know if they're, they'd be like, coach, am I doing it right? I'm like, that's not the point of this. Like, and, and we all as Americans need help with this. It's not a, I'm, you're not, it's not a, I'm doing it right or wrong thing. Like you have to get over that. It's, it's the part of the practice. It's not doing it right or wrong. Yeah. The process, the process, as Alan says, trust the process and, the process isn't what sells, you know, the, the quick fix and the, the microwave diet and lose 40 pounds in four days. You might die, but you'll lose 40 pounds. And, you know, with Alan and with, you know, I keep going back to Jager sports, but I think the reason like his programs have lasted in the longevity is it's simplicity, easy to implement. There's intricate details you can still learn in year 20 but it's a progression and you have to do the work. You have to lay the foundation for four to six weeks to get to beast mode. Beast mode doesn't happen on day one. And we're, we're working on a, a product right now called the mental, mental warrior package. And it's the most fun I've had in my professional career, arguably, because we're designing mental training after the same structure of our throwing program. It's going to be a progression. We're going to start you with a two and a half minute breathing exercise. Then we're going to go to seven minutes. Then you're going to go to 18 and then we'll give you freedom. You can go 25, an hour, whatever, but it's a progression. It's commitment over a long period of time. It's the compound effect. One of my favorite books where small actions repeated over a period of time gets you big results, but that's not sexy. That doesn't sell. And that's not what people want to hear. <laughs> and good luck getting to 20 or 25 minutes because I've, I've been a pretty steady meditator for a while and it's usually about 10 to 15 and, and yeah. I'm coming back out and I've, I've been at it for a long time. You know, you've talked a lot about Alan, but I want to talk about Tim Dixon a little bit because you've mentioned him. Um, you know, he probably don't, his nickname is the Senator. He was with Dan Callahan at Southern Illinois when I was a, a young coach and Dan, who's who's passed away now, God rest, uh, big shooter. Um, but he would call him the senator. So um, can you dive into a little bit with your relationship with Tim Dixon? Yeah, well, we're doing, this is an audio podcast, but as soon as you said Tim Dixon's name, I double-fisted into the air and I got a big smile on my face. There's certain people that, um, like, I think we're wired for certain people. Like, you have great relationships, some people, and you don't with other people. And when I met Tim... <clears throat> Like to this day, you said his name and something physically happens to me. Like, I'm ready. Like, let's go. What are we doing? What wall are we running through? And he just captures that competitor part that we talked about earlier so well to me. Like when I heard him speak in 2010, one of the first things he talked about was being a professional versus an amateur. 
And that's, you have two decisions in life and everything that you do, brushing your teeth, making your bed, whatever. And that was at a Jager sports clinic. And I did the long toss that day in Fullerton and it was 95 degrees, something like that. I was sweaty and I got home. We went to a late dinner. I got home late that night and I stood, I never forget this story. This is the Tim Dixon story for me, how he impacted me on day one. I stood at my bed and I was like, I can just go to sleep and I can shower in the morning. Right. I was like, but that is so effing amateur. Right. I was like, just get in the shower, be a professional. You're going to sleep better. It's better hygiene. So right there, he changed my life, but he, um, yeah, he encapsulates that motivational part of mental training where yes, it's about getting calm. It's getting quiet. It's getting succinct. But then if you're in Tim Dixon's way, you're not making it out of that arena. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> you know, for, for youth parents and coaches, players that are listening in right now, because I want to dive in a little bit more on the website, and it is aadf.org, so, and that's Athletes Against Anxiety and Depression Foundation. I love the fact that there's free resources on there and that you do have a therapist that's on there as well. Um, and really, that's what this is all about is, is trying to continue the foundation going, correct? Correct. Yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, so our biggest resource is free therapy. So all the funds that we raise for the most part go towards paying the therapist for people in need. So if somebody reaches out, they need therapy, we can direct them to her. They get three sessions to start. Um, they're an hour long session that they set up. It's, it's all easy. And nowadays it's easy. It's over the phone or on Zoom or whatnot. And then if they need more, we can work that out. Um, and then the other resources on there are articles, like we have an article, five tips for dealing with panic attacks. We have tell your stories, the Kevin Love articles, basically anything and everything in the modern world. It's a current approach to mental health. It's an everyday life approach, not a medical approach for the most part. There's some medical, everything's based on science and experience and everything. But um, it's just a great place to go if you want to see real world people that are struggling while living their everyday lives and what they're doing to try to help themselves and funds, especially this year, I never do this. I'm not this guy. Um, funds are short right now, which is a great thing because that means so many people have used them. 2020 has hit everybody hard. And so we've had so many people reach out this year for three, free therapy, which is great. Um, but there's a donate page on there as well that every single dollar, I don't take money. I have a job, a great job at Jager Sports. 100% of the funds go towards helping people. You don't have to worry about the um, integrity of the funds and it's tax deductible. We're official 501c3. So anybody that has the means that can donate to help people with mental health resources, that would be amazing. I'm going to actually do that. Cause uh, awesome. Yep. Yep. For sure. I mean, that's, I think as you get older, you, you see more of the value of giving back and, I've probably done that more this year just with everything that's going on than I ever have in the past. Um, you know, whether it's, it's paying for a membership for somebody or giving back to the schools that I went to or, or places that I coached at. Um, I, I think that's all part of it, but this is, is phenomenal. Um, what about your morning routines? I mean, I love asking this, is it morning or evening for you? Is it during the day? I mean, what outside of some of the other stuff you're doing, what are your morning or evening routines that you like that you feel like help you stay, stay level? Yeah. So morning for sure. I'm an early riser. Um, like today we started this at 9am, um, West coast time. And so I got up six 30, did 
I'm a runner. I like to run. I'm one of those psychos. And, uh, so I did like a five mile run, um, had a, I do a smoothie for breakfast. Right. So I always, I'm not a fruit and veggies guy. I'm Irish. I like steak and potatoes and get out of my way, but my fiance has gotten me on, uh, fruits, veggies. So I do it in a smoothie form. That's, that's the best you're getting out of me, but kind of gets good nutrients going through my body. And then I like to sit in silence and set an intention for the day. And most of the time it's the exact same thing. It's what kind of human do I want to be like, cause I used to have a temper. I'm pretty stubborn. I'm a perfectionist. And so I like to remind myself compassion, gratitude, understanding short, like good temper. Um, and just like I have on a post-it note on my computer, it's not a big deal. Be a problem solver. So like, Everything that comes up, like we talked about in the beginning of the, the podcast, um, a lot of stuff's not life and death. And so if somebody gets the wrong color J-band and they're angry, get them the right color J-band. Who cares? Like, it's not a big deal. And then always look for the solution instead of continuing to talk about the problem. And so that was a long-winded answer. But I like getting up, doing some form of movement physically, whether it's running, stretching, yoga, a workout getting some sort of nutrients and some water in my body and then setting an intention for my day before I drive to the office, the Jager sports headquarters. And I mean, I, I feel like I'm a lottery winner every day. Like I go in and talk J bands. I talk to customers. I fill packages. It's, it's so much fun, but yeah, movement, nutrients and intention for the day to start the morning for sure. You talked a little bit about the convention. Do you have any other favorite memories of the convention? Oh, man. So one of this will be such a weird one, but this just speaks to the audience of the ABCA and like how it brings everybody from just fans of baseball to this thing. So my high school catcher when I was a sophomore was a senior. His name is Vince Ortiz. And He's now pretty high up with LAPD and he basically runs their baseball organization with the LAPD. And so I'm at the Jager sports booth with the drive line. You know, we, we share the booth at the convention and it's always just a madhouse at that thing. People want to talk to Alan, people want to, and this kind of mob, like that was big. a, that was a, <laughs> a great switch. Like when, when the, whoever decided that, like to get drive line and, Jager sports in the same area was good. It, it brought a lot of like different traffic in a good way to the convention. Oh yeah. It's, it's always, uh, it's always busy for those days, but I felt this like mob of people coming over and I look over and it's Vince Ortiz, my high school catcher. And I'm like, what the heck? I haven't talked to him in years. And he's got the LAPD logo on, you know, this is what in Anaheim and it's him and a few of his other, you know, police officers that they want J bands. But the way it was, I got kind of backed up because there's no space in our thing. Alan's talking to 10 people and we've got all the driveline guys. Like, I don't know where to go. I got like backed up against the Easton, uh, the Easton booth, like their back wall. And these freaking guys, like you talk about claustrophobia, panic attack. Like these guys are like, we want J bands. And I don't know if they wanted to pay for him. <laughs> it was like one of the best. And I just talked to him about baseball. Vince and I had so many good laughs, just reminiscing. And they bought 10 Navy bands or I gave them to him. I don't know. I was terrified. I didn't want to get arrested. 
But um, it's those kinds of moments, like at the booth or in the hallway of the hotel, or you just see people that are there for the same reason because they love the sport, they want to learn, they want to be around. And that was just so cool because it's like, you know, you expect a college coach, you expect a high school coach, and you have those great interactions with them. But to have four or five LAPD officers corner you against the Easton booth trying to get J-bands, it was like, man, this thing is awesome. This is what it's all about. And so I have tons of those, especially with Alan. He's good luck getting from the booth. I've been there since 7 a.m. till 5 p.m. trying to sell J-bands or talk to people. Getting from the booth back to the room for some sleep with Alan Jager. Good luck, man, because he is so kind and he'll talk to everybody. And I started a couple of years ago. I just, I beeline. I just get to the room and get a nice nap. <laughs> what are some final thoughts? Final thoughts. So for the audience specifically, um, kind of going back with, I'm all about action steps, right? I want to give people tangible tools that they can use. Um, we talked about a lot. For the coaches out there listening, and if you're a player out there listening, just first things first is kind of set your intention, kind of define your priorities when it comes to your routine, when it comes to your mental health. Um, if you're a coach and you have the responsibility of laying out a culture, what do you want available for your players? And as a player, what do you want to be available? And is there a coach that you can talk to about that? And then have your actions match that. That's kind of action step number two that I go over in, a, in the I-70 clinic thing, but have daily action, right? If you're a coach, have your actions match what you lay out in your culture because that's the quickest way to lose a locker room or lose kind of integrity is that your actions don't match your words. And just revisit what you said, write them down because it's not easy to remember. And so write them down, revisit what you wanted to kind of prioritize, make sure your actions are living that way. And then if all else, all else fails on a daily basis, if you don't remember what you said, you don't remember this, my action step number three, my action step for everybody is just be a human being. What kind of human being do you want to interact with and be that human being for yourself? You want to be kind. You want to run into people that are compassionate, that try to be understanding, even though they've never gone what you've gone through. And so if a player is going through a mental health battle that you may not understand, be a human and try to help because that's your responsibility as a coach and be a human being for yourself. Be understanding with yourself, be compassionate towards yourself Give yourself some time every day for stillness so that when you do lay down, you can get a good night's sleep and be the best version of yourself that next day. And so prioritize, have your actions match your priorities, and then always fall back on being a decent human being. We're all in this together. Be kind. And when you're competing, rip the opponent's head off and get some wins. <laughs> well, I love that you talk about be the change, you know, the Gandhi quote, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. And, and really that that's what it boils down to is like, if you want things to change, then you have to change as well. Yeah. And that, that hashtag, I have that up in my house in Arizona. Like the first thing I bought was this little thing. It just says, be the change. And what that, the reason that quote is so significant to me is because I got so frustrated waiting for other people to take action for me or waiting for somebody to, and then all of a sudden, probably like 27, 28 years old, I realized I have the power to do that. I can do that. Or if I can't control everybody else, at least my little version of this, of being kind or being compassionate or getting this task done, 
I'm going to control what I can there. And so be the change just embodies action for me. And so I love that quote. And I love that you brought that up. I just, once you start to take ownership for everything, it completely changes your life. It does. Once you really take ownership of everything that you do and you stop worrying about the things that are happening to you or external factors, it changes everything. Yeah. Oh, it's, it gives me goosebumps as you're saying it. And I got a big smile on my face because as soon as that finger pointing goes external and comes internal, your life becomes more fulfilled. You are your own Rolodex every day of the occurrences that happen. It's just like, what did I do here? What did I do here? What I, not that person did this, that person did this. That's why this didn't happen. No, you can only control you. You can only control what you do. And so, yeah, that's, that's huge. Um, yeah. I mean, you can't control what people think about you. You can't control what people say about you. Uh, you know, I love that you talked about, you know, if, if you have toxic people in your life and this is hard cause it might be a family member, like just cut them loose. I know it's difficult, but like if that person's not bringing you value, you have control over that. You have control over your relationships. You have control over who you talk to. You have control who you let in your space you have control over that. It's a little bit harder as a coach, but you do have outside of that, you have control of, of who you let in your space. Yeah. And you said the crucial word, which is value. Um, if something doesn't bring you value, it should not be in your life. And that's the fundamental principle of minimalism. You know, the, the movement and the, the documentary on Netflix, minimalism. And they talk about, cause it's easy with items. It's like, does this vase bring our house value? No, I can donate that. But humans is a lot harder for people, but man, and it doesn't have to be like this sword, you cut it off. Over time, you figure out the people you want in your life that make you a better person and you just slowly get those other people out. Or if you can quickly, it changes your life. It really, really does. The Power of Less, I, I mentioned that book in the I-70 clinic, The Power of Less by Leo Babata. It's about eliminating things you don't need in your life. And that that could be clutter, you know, with minimalism, it's about things, but it could be about people too. That book is phenomenal for anybody that hasn't read it, The Power of Less. Mm, it's I a great that. book. Yep. Yep. So awesome. awesome. Appreciate it. So thanks again. This won't be the, the, the last one that you and I do. We'll do another one of these. Yeah, no, it was, it was a pleasure. I thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for Alan Jager hooking this up and uh, appreciate what you guys do for the baseball community coaches as a whole and what you've done for me personally. I really appreciate it. Got it, China. Thanks. Thanks to China for jumping on with me. I appreciate his willingness to be open and honest these are not easy topics to discuss, and I hope through this episode, people see that there are ways to implement these things, and they will help you on the field perform better, win more games, and be healthier away from the competitive environment. When you look at the numbers, suicide rates are up 200% in 2020. So whether you want to discuss it or not, it's happening. One of the top five things that Gen Z talks about wanting from an organization is psychological safety. Be the change you want to see in the world by Mahatma Gandhi is one of my favorite quotes. It's great that China uses that for athletes against anxiety and depression. Again, the website is aaadf.org. If you or anyone you know is struggling, please reach out to them. College coaches listening in, reach out to your counseling center on campus. They'll do a great job for you and your program. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West and the ABCA office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter at CoachB underscore ABCA, 
Instagram at Ryan Brownlee 17 or direct message me via the My ABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks and leave it better for those behind you. I don't have